I should not be moved by any of this because I've seen every version of it on like PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4 and now PlayStation 5. And I, it brought me to tears because it felt real. Hey folks, I'm Christian Spicer and we're back. That's right, we are back. Just as The Last of Us is on HBO, let me tell you, dear listener, HBO's The Last of Us is so good. The show is fantastic. You are going to love it. Also, dig this. I'm lucky enough to chat again with my friend, Neil Druckmann, The Last of Us video game creator and director about becoming The Last of Us on HBO, showrunner and director. It's a phenomenal conversation and I cannot wait for you all to listen to it. But before you do, yes, even right now, pause this if you have to. Don't forget to subscribe and listen to HBO's The Last of Us podcast, hosted by Troy Baker and showrunners Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann as they discuss every episode of HBO's The Last of Us. Okay, here's Neil and I's chat. So I'm going to start with something that I need to say, otherwise I'll be thinking about it the whole time, and it, it's from the show, also from the game. I don't think for our listeners a spoiler at all. Um, if you're listening to this episode and you're not familiar with the franchise at all, then it is a spoiler. So Sarah dies, and uh, Joel, and I want to say the word effortless, but I know it wasn't effortless for him, but seemingly played effortlessly by Pedro. Him and Bella in this show. It's just unbelievable. And as Sarah is dying in his arms, Joel holds her and just says, I know, I know, I know, I know. I didn't think <laughs> it'd be possible for you all to wreck me again <laughs> with Sarah dying, but holy crap. It's like, sometimes you go into something, media that you're familiar with, and you know the the moments that are going to wreck you. And then they find still new ways to wreck you. And I'm curious for you, for someone who is so intimately familiar with this, but also put a lot of themselves into it, what those moments were like for you adapting this story into a new medium. There are, there are certain moments and certain sequences that were like the reason to do the game. And the Sarah sequence is ends up being one of those. Um and that was one of those things that, and a handful of other ones are like, we have to get this right. Um, and everyone is nervous. So I'm glad it felt effortless to you, but no one went into it without a lot of trepidation and stress, and especially Pedro. Um, he had watched the game. He had watched a, a few parts of the game, even though we told him not to. They all did it anyways. Um, and he became nervous because Troy... That's Troy Baker, who played Joel, did such a phenomenal job. And Hannah Hayes, who played Sarah, it, it, it ended up being so real that, um, you know, it really connected with a lot of people when they played the game. So I tried not to put, like, I, I, when we made the game, I, I talked about this in the past. I made the mistake of amping Troy up, of like talking about the scene and how important it is and how, and how pivotal it is. And I think I, I, I somehow made him get in his own head. 
And that's why it took longer, I think, than other scenes to get right. And that's why I was like, I'm not going to talk, ever talk to Pedro about it. I'll just let him like kind of naturally flow into it. Because I, th I think I, I probably would have added to the stress of like, you know, when you want to get something right, sometimes you you grip onto it too tightly and that could mess things up. Um, the other thing we didn't know as well is uh, Nico Parker, who plays Sarah, she originally was one of our auditions for Ellie. We immediately all had the thought of like, oh my God, Sarah, like sh she would be Sarah. But you don't know, again, how that scene's going to land. It's You can't audition that scene. You can't have someone like even even in rehearsal, like you don't want to have them go all the way and, and, and waste it. So there was like, there was no rehearsal. And we just kind of went into it, crossing our fingers, like, well, we hope she can deliver. And oh boy, did she deliver. And then some. I should not be moved by any of this because I've seen every version of it on like PlayStation 3 and PlayStation 4 and now PlayStation 5. Um, and I, it brought me to tears because it felt real. Tommy, help me! Joe. Come on, baby girl. Come on, baby girl. I gotta get you up. Come on. Come on, get up. Come on, baby girl. Come on. Come on. Adaptations are notoriously hard. Um, either way you go, whether it's movie to a supposed big budget video game or comic book to movie or tv show or video game to you know any any way any way you cut the adaptation it's a, a difficult task i think many if not most people would agree and when you're going into something like the last of us how much of that felt fixed as a set in stone this is the last of us craig don't touch it um <laughs> and how much of it is malleable and was there stuff lines in the sand where it was like no that can't be changed or was everything open for interpretation yeah, someone um, someone asked me, it's like, what were your demand list? What are the things that were like, they could not be changed? I'm like, that sounds like some hostage negotiation. You have a demand list. And I, I think that's a bad starting point um, because so much of this, you know, I am teaming up with Craig Mazin, who just did Chernobyl, which I adored. I, I love the tone of it, how it was told. To me, it was like one of the best thrillers I've ever watched. And I cared so much about those characters and they felt so real and authentic that I think to start that relationship, a partnership by saying, well, here are the things you cannot touch, here are the things you can't do. I didn't want to have that approach. I, I, I wanted to remain open to the process. And whenever an idea was pitched to not have my initial reaction be like, oh, that's, that's too big of a change. Um, I, I try to always say, let's play it through. So to say, okay, well, if we did this, what's the ripple effect? Well, then this changes. And if that changes, then this changes. We kind of walk through the whole story like that. It's like, and then assess and step back and look at it and say, is it better or worse? Are we closer to the vision of what this thing is or are we further away? And this is why it's so important to know your ending and what you're heading towards and what this thing is about to say, okay, if I look at five ideas, which one brings me closer to that ending? Which one fulfills the promise of what this thing is? Are we closer or are we further away? If we're closer, then it stays. And even, even if it's a radical change, if we're further away, then like, okay, then there's no need to change it. It's too big of a change. Let's steer it back and talk about why an idea is better and not whether it's an original or not. Whenever you make a big change, in my mind, it always needed to be the payoff of it had to be proportional to how big the change was. But I would get sometimes these scripts from Craig and <laughs> anytime it deviated, 
whether a little bit or a bit, he would call me to give me a heads up because he'd be worried I would have like some big reaction or something. But the thing I really enjoyed are the surprises, the, the joy of these collaborations. And the joy I get out of that is seeing these other artists, these other craftspeople bring something beautiful to the table that's surprising. And sometimes I would get these scripts back from Craig where he zigged where I expected him to zag. And I would just have this smile on my face. I'm like, look at this, again, this amazing writer playing in this world that we've created at Naughty Dog and building these beautiful things within it. Um, it was a joy. And I, I think sometimes um, as a fan of something, you might think you want the exact same thing. And in this instance, that would be a mistake. If all we did was just copy the game, but now it's live action, then it will be a lesser version than the game because it will be everything just a game. Maybe they'll get the same performances, maybe not. Um, but then you remove all the interactivity. So it's in that way, it's less special. However, you know, to us, a lot of the conversation I had with Craig, um, uh, a lot of our conversations were like, well, what are the things that make the game unique that don't translate well? Or what are the concessions we had to make for the sake of gameplay? So for example, the, the obvious one is, you know, in a game, there are certain mechanical loops that uh, the player has to have enough of to get a mastery of those mechanics. And then the controller becomes almost like an extension of them but that means you have to have enough of those sequences for that, those mechanics to become second nature, to become instinctive. Which means if a lot of our game, you know, it's about survival and action and fighting and how do you deal with infected and in those different scenarios, we have to have enough of those for that to be meaningful. Um, but also we're trying to make a very grounded game with very believable characters. And there's a little bit of a conflict there in that, you know, we were trying to minimize how much action there is and how much um, of those action sequences are in the game. So with the show, we said, okay, well, we don't, we don't have to train you on mechanics. Um, so we could take a lot of that action out. And so we could have these downbeat moments where like, well, Joel can sit down for breakfast with Sarah and there's no tension to get to some action. That could be like a really genuine, sweet moment. And then Tommy comes in and we get to see more of the dynamic of that family in a way we couldn't in the game. Likewise, you know, in the game, we we're very hardcore dogmatic about the perspective you have. Again, it's purely Joel when you're Joel and Ellie when you're Ellie. Here, we don't have to do that because we're, you are not Joel, you're watching him. So we could focus on some other perspective and we could be with Sarah for much longer and have her go to the watch shop and, and see more of who she is, get you to care about her more. And therefore, when you lose her, yeah, we don't have the interactivity, but we got all this other stuff instead and hopefully those beats, those kind of iconic moments hit just as hard, sometimes even harder, uh, because we play to this other medium's strength. In video games, the whole game can be a VFX for lack of a better way mm. to put it. Yes, great acting, facial animation capture, but everything can be tweaked. In a live-action TV show, there are parts that aren't. But I wonder what that experience was like for you in terms of seeing these things come to life and maybe perhaps wrestling with what can be changed or updated or improved or this, that, or the other and versus what the camera captures is what uh, audiences will see when they watch the show. Well, there's a lot to, I think, unpack in that question. 
So when we shoot a performance capture scene, there, there's something nice about it is that you don't have to worry about coverage. Mm. So all the actors are there on, in the volume, uh, as it's called, and we have a scene and we could play that scene from beginning to end all the way through. And we could keep doing that multiple times until we got it. And then we have every camera angle because we have 3D data of their face, of their body, and we have their voice that uh, after the fact, we can go in with a handheld camera and pick the camera angles. We don't even need the actors there anymore. So we could just kind of like walk around the volume and be like, okay, this moment, this is a close-up. Oh, this part, this is a wide shot. Oh, this is a two shot. After the fact, we could change the lighting completely. We could change what the characters are wearing completely. We could even change who the character is. I could take someone's motion. Let's say it's like we did a scene with Troy and we don't like how he walked across the stage. But like, we could bring a stunt person and just have them walk and change that. You can't do that in live action. Um, pretty much what you see and through the camera lens is what you're going to get. There's some exceptions with VFX, but they don't afford you that much wiggle room like a video game. So it was important to do a lot of planning ahead of time, more so than we would have done for a game before we shoot a scene, because you have to figure out what is your set, what are the people, what are the characters wearing, any kind of special effects you want in the scene. You have to plan it way ahead in advance so you could test it multiple times so you're ready for the day of the shoot. You have to do all like the um, making sure that you've done enough rehearsal. Because again, you can't tweak the performance after. I can't go to the animator and be like, you know what, make that smile 20% more. Like, even though the person didn't cry here, let's add some tears to their eyes. I can't, I can't do that. So there's a lot more planning and then a lot more um, stress when you say action, because it does feel like a high wire kind of circuit act of like, okay, here we go, we're, we're juggling all these, these balls and I, I hope they don't kind of all fall down. And usually the first take, something does. <laughs> but then when you get it, it's this high, it's this thrill of like, oh my God, look at, look at that frame, we, we, we nailed it. But I, I will say everything else is pretty similar. Um, art direction is art direction. How are you telling your story cinematically through camera angles, through set design, through palette design, through lights and darks? Where do you put your detail versus simplified to guide the eye? Uh, acting is acting. So you talk into your actors about the characters, their obstacles, whatever it is. And there's, again, there's vo uh, uh, audio design, um, music. That's all very, very similar to what we did on the game. Um, but it's, it's, it's a kind of order of operation. And, and then the beauty of, <laughs> I, I laugh about this because I, I feel like I've been so lucky in my career. You know, I got to direct my first game at Naughty Dog, arguably the, one of the best studios in the world. Um, and then I got to make my first show with, for HBO, uh, uh, and then direct an episode for HBO with some of the best people and, and like the, the developed TV shows. Um, so, so being surrounded by people that love the game so much and want to do right by it, and they're studying the game meticulously and the art direction and, um, the overgrowth of plants, the design of the infected to the costumes, to the threads on the bed sheets. Like Sarah's bed sheets are authentic to the game. Um, all I could say it was a joy. It was a joy again to be surrounded by my, my job was relatively easy because everyone was just operating at the top of their game. No pun intended. I 
I want to spend some time talking about the music mm. of The Last of Us. On the prior episodes of this, we were fortunate enough to talk with Gustavo. And of course, we've listened to his music for years now, and it's exquisite. But there's this idea in the pilot of the 80s being dangerous, uh-huh. which I love. So I'm, I'm, I'm stacking a bunch of questions here, but I'd love to talk about Gustavo and his score and, and adding to that in the show. And then I'd also love to talk about um, why the 80s is dangerous to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's start with, uh, you know, Gustavo. It was a no-brainer. Um, from the one of the earliest conversations I had with Craig about music, we're like, we got to bring Gustavo. There's a, it's just, it's it's an easy slam dunk. So why would you not take it? Uh, his musical is beautiful and moving, and for my money, is part of the DNA of The Last of Us. And it'd be it'd be very different without his music. And I, I think a lot of the the game's mu- music stand on its own. There's no reason why we couldn't use some of the music straight from the game in the show, and it's exactly what we did. It's worth mentioning that we had a second composer with David Fleming who did some incredible work for like the a lot of the music and the pads and the stuff that surrounds Gustavo's themes and like making sure it all feels unified and tying it together. And then another part of, uh, as you pointed out, of The Last of Us is, you know, music in the world, some diegetic music. And a lot of it for me is music was always such an escape you know, when I, when I was younger and then thinking about, okay, what are the things that are left um, in this world that, you know, people could still reach out and find and music would be it, right? There's kind of infinite music out there that even though you might <laughs> be hard pressed to find uh, a, a new album, but there's all the old stuff that's there and then how people relate to it and um, how they use it became kind of interesting. And you talk about the 80s being dangerous. Uh, that was that was one of Craig's ideas. Uh, but he's he was a fan of the Depeche Mode and this one song. Um, and it felt like a fit in that same kind of way. Um, and I, I just I just love that it leaves you with that episode, with everything else that's going on at the end of the episode, right? You're, you're left with like, okay, Ellie's immune and they're heading into the, out, the, the outskirts area of the Boston quarantine zone that looks all bombed out. And we know there's something dangerous out there. And their business partner is just letting them know there's more danger out there that they're not even aware of because they didn't get to hear it. Uh, but it was a nice way to kind of exit the episode. And it, the tonally, that song creates just a really kind of eerie feeling that uh, we loved. I really love how apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic, or just people in dire straits in media address that. There's this, I think, wonderful moment in Hunger Games where it's, what do you miss most about your district? Mm-hmm. What is what is the thing? And this one character's like, music. And everybody's like, music? That's so, it doesn't mean anything. It's frivolous. That doesn't help you survive <laughs> at all. Why is music the thing? And I think time and time again, you can see in characters and in, in humans how vital art is. And I loved seeing that in this world, in this version of it on HBO, the idea of music still being very important to people. And I'm curious, in the character of Joel, how important the idea of art is to a man who some might say is a cold-hearted bastard. Is is there some version of him that is softened by that? Yeah, that's a a really interesting question of... um... How much does Joel just enjoy things day to day? And I think one of his 
issues is that he probably doesn't because he's so focused on surviving um, and it takes Ellie to pull him out of there. And it takes Ellie right, to, to pull out a joke book. And it's like, do you need a joke book to survive in the apocalypse? Probably not. But do you need one to live and laugh and be fully human? Some version of that, yeah. This show is much more diverse in its casting than the games. Mm. Um, from Pedro to Sarah to, I mean, pick your character. I would love for you to talk about um, what went into that, why it was important, or if it was important, and kind of how that um, that casting happened with the diversity of characters that you all have brought to the screen. Yeah, this sometimes is, I don't know, it shouldn't be, but it becomes a touchy topic. You know, when, when you talk about diversity, some, some, someone somewhere will say, woke, this is too woke, and um, you did it just for the sake of diversity. And to me, story is king, meaning story comes first. Even if you're going to travel, uh, traverse into some touchy trope, if it's that, that's what the story needs, that's what the story needs. So when you take a step backwards and, and you look at The Last of Us and say, okay, to me, as the writer on, on the original game, um, what, some of the thoughts that were going through my head is how I view the United States as an immigrant. I haven't talked about this a lot, but it's like it's, there's a sort of love letter to like Americana landscape and just ideas of like what the moving to the U.S. has meant to me and in a lot of positive ways and you know, some negative ways. But one of the things that I think makes the United States extremely special and unique is that it's a giant melting pot. And wherever you, when you walk down the street, wherever you look, you're going to see a different kind of person from different walk of life, um, different religion, different race, different identity. Um, and it was important that that diversity existed in this story, or it wouldn't be authentic to where the story takes place. So when we were casting roles, it was important to cast a very wide net. So for example, Sarah doesn't look exactly like Sarah from the game. We didn't seek out to, to do that, but we didn't steer away from it either because Sarah being blonde is not important to who Sarah is. Um, but I think the diversity of cast is important to the story, and I want us to do an even better job than we did on the game. But the, the, there's another benefit there, which doesn't overrule story, but I think is important that I know the joy I felt when I've seen my, and, and, and when I watch a movie that I really like or play a game that I really like, and I see myself in it, there's something that's unique, that's special. And a side effect of what we're doing, of trying to make the story even more authentic, is that it gives that feeling to more people and could inspire more people to tell their stories. And I, I, I like that. Again, that, that should never overrule story, but it's nice that it's there. And uh, I think the more we can give those experiences to different kinds of people, the more art we will inspire. Um, and there's something really, really, um, really cool about that. Man, I'm so excited for, I was excited for folks to see it before I was able to see some of it. And now I could not be more excited for folks to see it. I, I feel like my kid on on the morning of their birthday or Christmas morning. <laughs> it's, I'm so excited. 
you know, we're recording this, the show hasn't aired yet, and the anticipation is building. Um, you know, there's hundreds of people that worked on the show, and I'm in contact with a lot of them, and um, they're so excited for it to finally air and to see the reaction. And I, I'm equally excited and nervous. And um, However, uh, I, I will say something that I feel right now that I haven't felt in a really long time, probably since Uncharted 2. Um, when I was working on Charter 2, there was a moment when we had created that E3 demo where like um, the building collapses and Nathan Drake's in it and he jumps out of it. It was a set piece that I've never seen before in a, in a game, especially triple a game like and, and done to that effect. And I was confident we had a hit on our hand, just confident. And I've never been that confident since, until now. And there's something in, in watching this show and getting to certain moments and... There's a particular moment very late in the season when you just see the characters kind of click. And it's one of those um, sequences that made me want to make the game. And I was very nervous about whether it would have the same impact when we reached this point of the story in the show versus the game. And uh, I actually avoided watching dailies of it because I wanted to see a more final version of it. You know, Craig was overseeing a lot of it. So I'm watching everything around it. And then eventually when it's ready, I'm like, okay, let me, I'm gonna re I'm gonna watch this show in chronological order and get to this moment. And I watch it and I get to it. And again, it shouldn't hit me. I've I know the story inside inside and out. Uh, I've, I've seen it acted beautifully already uh, in the game version. And I'm bawling. Uh, and it hits me hard. Uh and I texted Craig and I'm like, we did it. And there are certain things that are in your control and certain things that are outside of your control. In our control is whether we make something we're proud of. That is within our control. And we could push and, and, and kind of make sure we minimize the amount of compromises that we make and do something that if I had nothing to do with this show, this would be one of my favorite shows. And I hope this doesn't sound conceited. And, and, and I take pride in what everybody else did. Again, I'm looking at this thing that hundreds of other people worked on Percentage-wise, my part of it is relatively small. Uh, this would be one of my favorite shows ever. Um, and it's not patting myself on the back. It's patting everybody else uh, on the back. So the show's going to air, and now it's like in just a handful of days. And I don't know what the reaction will be. I hope it's good. But even if it isn't, even if the show somehow falls flat on its face and no one watches it, I'll be extremely proud of it. This is Joel and Ellie's story through and through. and. So to speak to the fans a little bit, I know how so many of them, the kind of impact the game has had on them, because they've let us know throughout the years, the kind of impact the game has had on them. And I know why they're so protective of it, because historically, with some exceptions, video game adaptations have been poor. I, I know about Arcane, I know Sonic the Hedgehog and Castlevania, and those are, those are fantastic, but those are the exceptions. Um, and that's why I think a lot of fans are hesitant. But... I, I think you will watch this. I really believe, and you will see something that captures the same feelings you've had when you've played the game, and in some ways elevates it. Uh, I love that now I've talked to a few people that have watched the entire show and are big fans of the game and have reached out to me. It's like, I was hesitant. I wasn't sure. I saw some of this stuff, and I was like, I don't know about this casting or this particular choice, or I heard you change some stuff, and I've watched it, and you guys have captured what the story was about. Not only that, they said the game feels richer now. 
having watched the show. Like it fills in like these holes that are like, or these like the outside of things that are happening in the periphery, I can now imagine happening in the game when I'm playing it. And that to me is like, what a better compliment for an adaptation that it doesn't negate anything with the game, it, it elevates the game. So my, my hope is that that's what fans feel. And I think when they watch it, they'll, they'll have that feeling. I think they'll see the love that this cast and crew poured into this show uh, beyond what they were required to do because they love the material so much. Well said. I mean, it is such a beautiful thing. The love that is so visible on screen and in their work and the way that now more people are going to be able to experience this world in this story that is so important to me and I think to so many others is such a beautiful thing. If we can go on another tangent, um, uh, Gabriel Zevin, who wrote Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, this beautiful book about these two kids that uh, grew up in the 80s playing video games and became video game developers. And it's this really moving story. She pretty much won every award known for um, writing uh, a novel. I recently had lunch with her and we just kind of talked about, you know, the the beauty of art and how we both kind of had the same realization where I, when I, I think when I was younger and maybe more naive, I used to think, oh man, I'm going to make art that will change the world. And then I realized, no, probably not. Um, the world is kind of set in its ways and it's going to evolve in its, its own way. And, and art will have, uh, I think, at least the art I make will have relatively small impact on it. But I think really good art um, can have a huge impact on a small amount of people. And you know, since we recorded the podcast, NIDOC has grown. We're now like over 400 people working on several projects. But um, there's a, a woman that joined us recently. And she's a fantastic writer. And, and I was just so impressed with her writing uh, very, very early on. As soon as she joined NIDOC, I'm like, what's your, what's your story? And uh, she's like, yeah, well, you know, I, I worked and um, she directed music videos and she wrote and directed her own indie film. And then she's like, and then one day... I played a game called The Last of Us. And that I'm getting emotional just saying it, uh, but I, I don't think she knows how much this story impacted me. And she's like, and I thought I wanted to switch careers and make video games. And she went back to school and studied game design and started working on like some indie games. And then I saw like an opening, you guys were hiring a writer, so I applied. And is there a better compliment than that? That we have created something at Naughty Dog. And I know when I was young and I played Metal Gear Solid, Crash Bandicoot, King's Quest. I can name like a handful of games that have like really impacted me deeply. And I don't know how wide reaching those games are. And you know, they didn't change the world, but they changed me. And they made me want to make video games. And now to know that we've created something that has that effect on people, I think that's what it's about. It's, it's, a, it's affecting a few people deeply instead of trying to change the world. And that the thing that is to me is the most inspiring and the thing that makes me want to do meaningful art more than anything. And I hope this show does something similar to some future filmmaker uh, or just some, some, someone who wants to tell a story that is moved by it so much, it inspires them to create art. Man, Neil, again, thank you so much. Uh, I am one of that, you know, contingency. I think there are more of us than, than maybe even you honestly know. It's phenomenal. And thank you for, you know, doing, doing this with us again. It's, uh, 
one of the true highlights of uh, everything I've ever done, which is... Uh, uh, this is uh, this was a pleasure, and the easiest work I've ever done is chatting with you about The Last of Us. <laughs> I would love, if you're okay with it, to have another conversation after this audience is more deeply familiar with the show, um, and we can talk more about specifics um, can we can we can we have one of those uh, later? Oh man, I'd love to. And hopefully, we're cheerful like this, or we're laughing about the the reaction that the show has made, or maybe we're very somber. And uh, but absolutely, yeah. After this this show is uh, the entire season is aired, let's get back together. Amazing. Stream new episodes of The Last of Us Sundays at 9 p.m. Eastern on HBO Max and subscribe to the audio companion HBO's The Last of Us Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The official The Last of Us Podcast is hosted by me, Christian Spicer, and produced by HBO and Spoke Media. Special thanks to Neil Druckmann for taking the time to talk with us. This episode was produced by Carson McCain and Kelly Kolf and written by Brigham Mosley. This episode was mixed by Evan Arnett who contributed additional sound design and music. Executive producers for Spoke Media are Aaliyah Tabakolian and Keith Reynolds. Thanks for listening. And be sure to come back to this feed at the end of the season of HBO's The Last of Us when Neil Druckmann returns to chat with us about the whole dang season. Yeah, buddy. <laughs>